Again, we come to what is a very familiar text, if certainly, if not our text for today, then what remains of chapter 15 certainly is, and that is what is given to us as the story, the parable of the prodigal son. And it's also certain that these three stories that are given here go together. However, there is enough difference in what's given in the first two and what's given in the last that I've chosen to to separate this chapter into into two weeks, two messages that we'll consider and to give some consideration to the story of the prodigal son in more detail. It would certainly be natural to wonder in light of last week's test, text where we consider the last portion of, of chapter 14 where Jesus issues the responsibility of what it means to come to Him, to give consideration to following Christ, the, the demands of discipleship. As He has this crowd that's come and gather around him it's like as we consider just the difficulty of his words are and i think they are deliberate lest there be some who have come and mistake this notion of coming and being one in the crowd and following after jesus and there's nothing entailed to that other than walking where he walks and he issues forth the demands of discipleship to rightly esteem him To rightly consider what it means to follow after him. And to understand these instructions. He who has ears to hear. Let him hear. So it would certainly be natural to wonder. What the response to that message of Jesus would have been. I think it would be safe to say that more than likely the crowd was thinned. As we saw as we read also from from last week from our scripture reading from John chapter 6 as Jesus would on these occasions give these difficult teachings and these difficult sayings and people were ready to turn and to go. We don't have any details here from Luke of what happened. We don't have anything here where Luke tells us well after Jesus spoke these things the masses turned away and walked away. But we do have Something of an interesting transition, I think, when we conclude chapter 14 with with the words of Jesus. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, he who has been graced to truly understand what's being what's being proclaimed in this message. For those who have been graced by the grace of God, you understand exactly what Jesus is saying here. And you're willing and ready to embrace that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then you have in 15.1, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Interesting to those who have the ears to hear. If there is a connection, and I believe that there is, from 14 to 15. It's interesting that those who have ears to hear. Would be the most unlikely. In the thinking of those. Who within hearing range of what Jesus is saying. Be the tax collectors. And be 
the sinners. People who did not have to be convinced of their own spiritual need because they were aware of that. People who could be convicted of sin because they recognized and were willing to acknowledge that they had sin. People who were accustomed to having such charges brought against them from the religious elite. You're sinners. You've no place in the kingdom of God. So let's consider here, as we look at our text here, in beginning in chapter 15, this morning we're looking at the first ten verses, what's given to us as the two parables, one of the lost sheep, and then the parable of the lost coin. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, <clears throat> there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, and over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends or neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. As parents, I think we, most of us have realized, if our children are aged to understand the difficulty we have in trying to communicate theology to our children when they are at a young age. And especially when you're trying to give them a picture of what God is like. How do you answer that question when a kid asks, asks that? What's God like? You know, where do you begin? Where do you end? And what's he like in his essence? What's he like in his character? And of course, depending upon the age of your child that you may be speaking with, you answer that question in different ways, don't you? But we have as a desire as parents to, to portray him accurately. We want our children to get a, the right kind of picture in their mind of what God is like. Well, the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day had taken upon themselves to convey to the people around them, to portray to them what they imagined God to be like. And so because of that, there was the, the picture in their mind, in the Pharisees' mind, and also the minds of, of those who were influenced by their teaching of what God must be like. And sad to say, in the minds of many people, the picture of God was this. There's no place 
for me in God's kingdom. I've no place. I'm not fit. I have too many strikes against me. I have too many reasons that God could not and would not receive me into His presence. And so we have another occasion here where Jesus challenges, Jesus corrects what is oftentimes a distorted picture. And so Jesus takes it upon Himself to give a portrayal of what God the Father is like. Now, we need to understand that this isn't, this isn't everything about God. He's not given a, a complete, full-orbed picture of this is what God the Father is like. However, this is a part of the picture that the Pharisees had missed. And it's a part of the picture, likewise, that many of the people that were there were missing when they considered God. And so Jesus turns to parables. He turns to images and pictures and parallels to portray what God is like, and in particular, what God is like in relation to sinners. In relation to those who are alienated and separated from Him. And it's a picture here, it's a portrayal that Jesus gives that's not like anything these people have heard before. Let me assure you, the Pharisees had their images of what God was like, and Jesus counters that. So let's see here. What does Jesus portray God? How does Jesus portray God before the minds of those who are hearing Him? And here in verse 15, particular chapter 15, verse 1, these tax collectors and these sinners, and in response to the, to the concern, the criticism of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, what do we see here? Well, first of all, who's left? Who's left in response to Jesus' call to discipleship and His explanation of discipleship in chapter 14? We have what would be deemed by many simply the riffraff. The riffraff people. The people that no one really wants to be around. And this riffraff of tax collectors who were deemed to be by the Pharisees and by many others as they were political traitors because they were collecting taxes on behalf of this hated government of Rome from the Jewish people. And so many people, look, they have betrayed us. They are tax collectors. And so they were looked down upon. And also those who were simply called here in the terminology of Luke, <clears throat> taking the terminology of the day, sinners. Sinners were those who make made no effort to live by the instruction and by the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. They just gave up on the whole scheme. This can't be for me. It's not for me. So they made no effort. And so the scribes and the Pharisees just deemed them as sinners. And these are the ones who began to, to gather closely around Jesus. Some company, isn't it? See, the scribes and the Pharisees, they've already taken offense and they've separated themselves from Jesus. Apart, except when they might be around him to find some grounds to accuse him. And those who were the casual, the uncommitted followers in light of what Jesus said in chapter 14. They've probably departed as well. This is more than I bargained for. 
So off they go. So here we are, this motley crew of outcasts that stick around. Interesting that these are the ones who feel welcomed by Christ, who feel that they have a place to come. So the Pharisees and the scribes, they're observing what's taking place. They're observing this group of tax collectors in verse 1 and these sinners that are coming near Jesus and they're listening to Jesus. So what do they do with the scribes and the Pharisees in verse 2? They begin to grumble. They begin this concern, this, this complaining. And this is their grumbling. They see that this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Note here the terminology that they use. This man. They've determined some things. One is, number one, in in spite of what Jesus may say about himself, he is not God, and he cannot be God's Messiah, simply judging by the company he keeps. The people of any religious significance will have nothing to do with Jesus and look at the type of people who are coming. Tax collectors. And so they've linked in their minds, birds of a feather flock together. This is the kind of person that Jesus really is. He can't be God and he certainly cannot be the Messiah. Claims to be God. Yet he associates with sinners and cheaters and traitors and those who are morally suspect at best. And then Jesus responds to that. He responds to that criticism with these three stories, three parables, two of which we're going to consider. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost prodigal son. The prodigal son we'll consider next Lord's Day, Lord willing. And this first picture that he gives in... Beginning in verse 4, this picture in the store of this lost sheep, and certainly that would be a familiar imagery to the people of God, to the people familiar with the Old Testament, a familiar imagery that God would be a shepherd and that the people of God would be sheep. We see that imagery, for example, Psalm 23, as we have even expressed in our song here, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, God the shepherd, I am the sheep. We also see it in Psalm 100. There we are called His people and the sheep of His pasture. This imagery of God being a shepherd and the people of God being like sheep. We see it in other places through the Old Testament. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Then Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. Verses 15 and 16. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. Then verse 17, as for you, my flock. So this imagery of God being pictured as a shepherd and 
the people of God being pictured as sheep was one that they would not only grasp and agree with, they would understand it. They would understand without being explained to them, this is the picture of God and His people. And so he gives this picture, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. He just simply appears to, appeals to their logical reasoning of things. What man of you? If any of you were the shepherd and you had a hundred sheep and one wanders off, you leave the ninety and nine. You don't sit there and say, well, I've still got ninety and nine. I'll be happy with that. You go after it. You go after the one who has wandered. So like any good shepherd, any of them would go in pursuit of the lost sheep. Then the second picture that he gives here, verse 8 and following, about this lost coin. And here he uses a woman, the picture of a woman here. The point being here that anyone who has ten coins, lost one, this lady, this woman, she begins this diligent search that the homes there were often dark. Maybe having one small window, she, she realized that she's lost this coin. So she goes to the trouble of lighting a lamp to lighten the place, to, in, to increase, to improve her visibility, trying to find this lost coin. And she gets the river out and starts sweeping. Where is this thing? And she looks until she finds it. So what's being pictured here? The picture is this. The picture that Jesus is giving here and the parallel that He is drawing is this. That there is a diligent pursuit on the part of God in going after those who are lost and going after sinners. And so when Jesus gives this picture, it's something that to the his hearers is this is worse than we had even imagined. If Jesus is God, which He in fact is, it's worse than the critics have thought. He not only receives sinners, He not only eats with sinners, He even goes after them. He's pursuing them. Just like a shepherd would pursue a lost sheep, just like a woman would go after and pursue diligently, search diligently for a lost coin. That's the imagery that He's given here. It's not the picture of God that the Pharisees were accustomed to. They understood that God would receive a repentant sinner. But they their thinking beyond that was that otherwise he would have nothing to do with him, that God would separate himself from them. And that's not the picture that, God, that Jesus gives here at all. The picture here is that God goes after them. God seeks after sinners. And it's not a token searching. That it's an earnest pursuit. It's a desire. As a shepherd goes looking for his sheep, he's looking with earnestness. He's not just doing, oh, I'll casually go through a few fields and I don't find him. No, no big deal. Or a woman who... Casually glances at a few places. Oh, I can't find that, but I've still got my nine. No, but there is an earnestness. There is a, a genuineness in this pursuit from the heart of God for the sinner. 
And isn't that absolutely essential? Isn't it absolutely essential that God pursues after sinners when we consider the heart of man? When we consider that our frame of mind toward God and toward the things of God is at best an ignorant indifference. We don't know and we don't care. A man left to himself, he doesn't know where he is spiritually and he doesn't care. A position of ignorant indifference. And the scripture tells us that there is none that is righteous. That there is not even one. That there is none who seeks after God. And Paul quotes that in Romans 3. Actually a reference to Psalm 14. That there's none who in and of himself would go pursuing after God. So that if there's ever to be any reconciliation... If there's ever to be any fellowship and communion with God and sinful man, God must be the one who pursues because man will never pursue God. That's the picture here. And so what a marvelous portrayal of the grace of God. The kindness of God. That God seeking after sinners, that you are a child of God today, if you are in fact in Christ, because God pursued you, not because you pursued Him. And that any pursuit that there was within your heart was because of God's grace, God's initiative first in you. Who could stand and find fault with God if he if he sought for none? Could we bring a charge against God if he didn't choose to save anyone? That man is not seeking after God. What if God chooses? I'll not seek after them either. I'll not pursue them either. Would we find any fault with God? Is God not free to let us go our own way? Certainly, that God was not compelled, forced to pursue men. It certainly was of no eternal benefit to him. Now, what have we added to God by us coming to him? How has God been improved? (laughs) We understand the fallacies of such thinking. Why? Why pursue rebellious, defiant, arrogant, and insignificant creatures of dust? Why do that? You see, there's there's a part of us that should be surprised if we truly understand the nature of God and the glory of God, the the majesty of God. There's a part of us that should understand this is a this is a prize. There's a part of us that would not expect this. They would not expect that God would pursue diligently after sinners. Why should he? It's nothing 
but His grace. And what a comfort that is to us. What a comfort to those of us who have experienced, we've experienced the, the guilt and we know what it is to be heavy laden with our sin, knowing that God is one who pursues sinners and that my sin is a horrible, an offense against Him that God still pursues. He pursues after sinners. So that I can agree with the biblical teaching regarding my sin and my wickedness and my indifference. I have to deny it. I have to try to paint it and make it look better than it really is. It's ugly. It's wicked. And it's an offense against God. But God still pursues the overcoming grace of God. Overcoming all of these things and pursuing me to be His. That's the picture Jesus wants to see here. God pursues. He goes after. He seeks after sinners. Now, that's not the whole picture of God. We understand that. But this is a picture that they needed to see. And this is a picture, I think, that we need to see. God pursues sinners. You know, sometimes we get into our little theological cubes and tunnel visions and we take those verses of of God being angry with the wicked every day and those types of things and I'm just appalled at times at the Spirit I hear in people who are, some I count as dear brothers in Christ, but it's when you see people experiencing the consequence of their sin, it's almost like, well, they're getting what they deserve and let them have it. Yes, they are getting what they deserve, but can we not hurt with them and can we not long to see the grace of God reach even them? Whoever they may be. That God's heart is a God is a heart of grace. <clears throat> and there's mystery in this. You know, there is mystery in this, and that there are those who are the enemies of God, and that they will endure, they will experience his wrath forever. But we know this. If there are if there is anyone, if there is anyone who is in the kingdom of God today, it's because God has pursued you. God has pursued the sinners. Second thing we see here, as Jesus portrays the heart of God here, He sees here a divine pleasure. What makes God happy? What makes God happy? You know, you ask a few people that question, you'll, you'll get a diversity of answers, will you not? You know, what, what comes to mind making God happy? Well, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they had an answer to that. The Pharisees answered us, what makes God happy to be something like this. It's living by a strict moral code, moral code that is based upon God's law. In other words, to the Pharisees, be like us. And you will make God happy. We are the kind of people that God is happy with. And Jesus' answer is revealed in these two parables. He makes a deliberate reference to the joyous celebration that follows the success of finding a lost sheep and a lost coin. Look in verse 6 there. 
says when he comes home and he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, share in my joy, for I have found my, found my sheep which was lost. And then in verse 9, there of the lost coin with this woman who's found this lost coin. She's found and she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me. Share in my joy, for I have found the coin which I had lost. So Jesus takes those pictures that He gives gives to us in verse 6 and verse 9, and He draws a parallel for something that takes place and notice here, he says in both cases, verse 7, verse 7, the first three words, there it is again. I tell you, 21 times that expression occurs in Luke's gospel. I tell you, the authoritative words of Christ speaking as God himself. I tell you as God himself, these things are true. And then down in verse 10, in the same way, I tell you. These things are so. This is the authority of God. God speaking as God. I tell you. There's joy. Verse 7. Joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. There is verse 10. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So we see here when Jesus gives the picture here of going and pursuing sinners. It's not that he has in this a simple goal of fellowshipping with people like that. In other words, these people are, you know, they're just honest, you know, salt to the earth people. You see what you get. I like to be with that kind of people. That's not what he's saying here. He shows here that God's goal is. And the pursuing the sinner is redemptive. His goal is to deliver them. His goal, his intent, his desire is that they come to him in repentance. It's not just simply that his joy is in going after them and embracing them. His joy is that they respond to his overtures. They respond to the call of the gospel in repentance. That is his joy. That sinners are delivered. There is a redemptive goal here that he has in mind. That is the pleasure of God. So when Jesus, he opens, as it were, he opens up to us the windows into heaven. So I want you to see, I want you to have a picture here in your mind of what's going on when someone comes to God in repentance. There's joy there. That's what brings pleasure to the heart of God. It's repentance. It's not just coming into social contact with these people. See, He's a Savior, isn't He? 
Jesus is a Savior. God is a Savior. He is a deliverer. And His joy is in deliverance from sin to set us free. Listen, there's no comfort in being in the fellowship and communion and the presence of Jesus if there's no deliverance from what separates me from Him. And there were many people who had the opportunity to live with Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to share the path with Jesus, to sit down to eat with Jesus. The very presence of Jesus. But they didn't experience the deliverance from their sin. And His joy was not in that. His joy was not in just spending time with people like that. His joy was when someone repents. It's pretty marvelous when you think about it. We understand repentance. We understand repentance as a, as a grace of God. It's not a work. We understand that God grants repentance. So that God joys. God finds His joy in bringing to fruition what He accomplishes in the hearts of someone. So it's God's joy in what He does. But it's, but it's a genuine repentance that someone who is delivered from the destiny of hell, that someone is delivered from the destiny of eternal separation from Him, and they're brought into communion and fellowship with Him. Listen, that brings great joy to the heart of God. Great is this joy. Rejoice with me, I found my sheep which was lost. There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. His joy is in the accomplishing of His purpose and His coming. Why did Jesus come? What was the purpose of His coming? And that's multifaceted, but very simply in a few places. We know part of it was this. He came to call sinners to repentance. He came to save His people from their sin. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. So what makes God happy? In a word. Repentance. You desire to please God? You want to bring, bring pleasure to the heart of God? The first thing to do is repent. It's to recognize, just to acknowledge, God, I need You. God, I have walked in rebellion and in defiance against You. And I deserve nothing of Your graces, nothing of Your goodness. I want to, I want to turn from... From this life of rebellion. This life of living for myself. I want to be free from that. So that I might live for you and live for your glory. And I think it's safe to say even as a child of God it continues, doesn't it? We continue to repent. We continue to recognize that we've sinned against God. There is a divine pleasure that Jesus portrays here. And there is joy. There is joy in the presence of God, in the person of God. 
when one sinner repents. And finally, we see in this portrayal that Jesus gives, a, there's a distinct preference. There is a distinct preference. In contrast to one repentant sinner, verse 7, there is this 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, there's some disagreement here on a couple of points. Number one, the translation here is not a given. <laughs> I read, I'm reading from the New American Standard, and the New American Standard reads this way. <clears throat> I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy. And the word more in the NASB is italicized, meaning that's not in the original Greek. It's added. It's interpretive. Okay? So it's not translation. It's interpretation. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy or there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, also in the NASB, and most translations will render it this way, where you have the word than, there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than. That word's in the Greek. The question is, what word goes with than? Is it, as the NASB actually moves it over to a few words, <clears throat> I tell you that... In the same way, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents more than over 99 righteous persons. That's, that's very common. That's NASB. I just moved the word more. Here's another possibility. And again, it's interpretive. I tell you that in the same way, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents rather than. And it's just as viable an alternative here as more than, because more is added. It's not in the Greek. If you look at the Greek, you'd read something like this. I tell you, in the same way, there will be such joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons. So the word than is added, and it could very easily be rather. So that's one difficulty in this verse. And I, to be honest, I don't think that makes a strong difference, but I think it could make some. The question then is, who are the 99 that Jesus speaks of here? Who, as he describes them, the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, the first question we need to answer is this. How far do we go when we are looking at parables? And trying to determine whether there is a direct parallel in the parable to a reality. In other words, is, this an, is there an allegorical principle here? So this is a picture of this. So that, for example, we know that the shepherd is a picture of God. We know that the lost coin is a picture of 
Or the lost sheep is a picture of a lost person. A sinner. But is it proper to to keep pressing that and say, well, this 99 righteous persons is representative of something? Or is this just something incidental to the story? Now, there's been a lot of divergence in interpretation of parables over the years. For years, for years, the dominant interpretation back in church history was the dominant understanding of parables were you go through and you allegorize everything. And there were many in church history who've done that. There are still some who do it. Based upon the fact Jesus and his story and his parable on the sower, he gives his story, the parable, this parable of the sower, and then he explains what all these things mean. And so some have taken, well, all these little things had something paralleled and Jesus told what it was when he explained it. You know, the sower is this, the seed is this. Then you have another account where the reapers are this and the angels. So all this stuff, it means something. The word is something. Back in about the the 50s, 40s or 50s, it became very dominant. The approach to interpreting the parables became this. That the parables have one main meaning and you're not supposed to try to go through and figure out how to understand every little parallel so that you, don't, you get away from this what I think is an over allegorizing of the scriptures and the parables so that was dominant from the 50's on for many many years that was just became the common not in a full circle some still allegorized but some said no there's one main thing one main point in every parable you find that one main point there's a more current trend, which I, I think is a good balance. And that is that you look at the number of main characters in the parables. And from that, you determine how many points that there are to be learned here. So that in these parables, you have one character would be the shepherd or the woman. Another character would be the lost sheep or the lost coin. That's two. And the third character or groups would be the ones that are not lost. The 99 that are not lost. And then the nine coins that are not lost. And I think there's, there's much to that, to that position. It does away with what I think is the over-allegorizing of church history. But it does what I think with the overly simplistic approach to the parables that well, there's only one main point, one main picture. And you find in the parables that there's some diversity. Some are interpreted one way, some are not. But we look at this. Clearly there's a picture being given here of the shepherd of God. Surely, and clearly there's a picture here of the lost or the sinners and the sheep and the coin. And I think it's safe to say there that there is something being pictured here by this 99 who need no repentance and that we're not being guilty here of overly allegorizing something here. Now, in saying all that, <clears throat> there's widespread disagreement upon who these 99 who need no repentance are. Some say, well, it's the angels. Because angels need no repentance, so it's, it's the only option. <laughs> but I think to bring that imagery into this, these parables here, that it's angels was, is confusing and it's an unnecessary mixture of humans with angels. I, I don't think that fits. But there are some who, who do. There's another position is that these are pictures of Jews who already truly hope in God. 
So they don't need to repent. They already have their hope in God. But my question to that would be, well, did they not repent sometime? And is there a different joy that God has in them? It's not the same as the new repentance. That's what he says, that there is joy in heaven either more than or rather than this 99 who did not need repentance. And the third position, and there's more, but these are the three major ones, is that these are in fact speaking of the Pharisees and the scribes. Simply those who did not consider themselves as needing repentance. And this is actually my preference. I believe that it's speaking here of the Pharisees and the scribes. Especially when you look at it in the context of the, of the prodigal son, which we're looking at next week. Where you have this second son, this older son, and his response to what takes place when his brother returns. fact of the matter is, if you dismiss the idea of angels, which I do, there are none who are not in need of repentance. All must repent. And the language of Luke 5.32, where Jesus himself says, I've not come to call the righteous, like you Pharisees, but I think that's implied. I've not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners That permits this interpretation. And also the language of Matthew 5, verse 20. When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, listen to me carefully. When you read that verse, it looks like, or it sounds like, that the scribes and the Pharisees have a righteousness. Because that's what Jesus says, that your righteousness must exceed or surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Next, what we realize is that those are those that have no righteousness at all other than a self-righteousness. So, the interpretation that I prefer on this is this. God's joy is in the sinner who repents rather than the 99 who see no need to repent like you, Pharisees, lawyers, and scribes. That you've disqualified yourself from the grace of God because you don't recognize in yourself a need to repent. See, God's preference is always for the repentant sinners. And so these people in all their religious appearance and all the religious garb they put on is not sufficient. The only option one has to come into God and as a repentant sinner is that they be deceived and they attempt to come on a merit-based self-righteousness. So the point would be this, that no one does himself any favors by coming to God confident in and proclaiming His moral fitness and His righteousness. As though you're doing God a favor by coming to Him. And that's the thinking of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
The only way to enter God's company is to bring Him pleasure, and that is to repent, to renounce your sin, to renounce your right to yourself, to admit His right to you, and to look to Him to bring reconciliation through Christ. That's it. So we need to beware of a simple religious garb, the things that we know that Christianity should look like. It should have uh, be a decent moral lifestyle. But that's not Christianity in and of itself. There is to be a change of heart that is wrought by God within the individual where he comes to him in repentance. So is this how you portray God? You know, I, I fear that many times we reformed theologians err on the other side, don't we? And again, this isn't everything. This is not the only picture. This is not the full picture of God. But it's one that we need to see. Of God pursuing the sinner. Of God coming after us. And we'll see next week, just in the picture of this father waiting in anticipation when he sees that son coming, he, he runs to him. Of God pursuing and finding joy, finding pleasure in the repentant sinner, that there is joy in the presence of God when a sinner repents. And his preference is that over those who think they have no need for repentance. No matter how fine the religious dress may be, if it is not the righteousness of Christ, it is not Christianity. And you've no place with Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the picture You've given to us, Your love for us as Your people, not because we are fit and deserving, but because you are gracious and merciful. Thank you, Father, that you've come to seek that which was lost. And in your pursuing, that you have brought us into yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.